Hello everyone, and welcome to another chapter of Stay Wild and Listen. I am your reader, L. This evening, it is September 23rd, 2022, and we're going to continue reading with Bram Stoker's horror classic, Dracula. Like I said, I've never read this book before, and since me, my reading Harry Potter has been flagged for copyright, and I still want to continue reading, um, I figured... Why not read something that is no longer under copyright and is now available in the public domain? Last time we left off, um, I believe that the main character, I forget his name already, he was taken on to a different carriage, one with dark, scary-looking horses and a man with fangs. So that should be fun. By the way, folks, if you hear a helicopter in the background, please forgive me. I live in a very, very dangerous city. You could call it Gotham City. <laughs> I wish. At least over there they had Batman. All right, so let's continue going on. So if you have a copy of the book, please join me. And if you don't have a copy book, then sit back, relax, and enjoy. Wait, that's not how it goes. You know, and stay a while and listen. All right, let's begin. Where we last left off was, I waited with a sick feeling of suspense. Then, a dog began to howl somewhere in a farmhouse far down the road, a long, agonized wailing as if, it, as if from fear. The sound was taken up by another dog, and then another, and another, till born in the wind, which now sighed softly through the pass. A wild howling began, which seemed to come from all over the country, as far as the imagination could grasp it through the gloom of the night. At the first howl, the horses began to strain and rear, but the driver spoke to them soothingly, and they quieted down, but shivered and sweated as though after a runaway from a sudden fright. Then, far off in the distance, from the mountains on each side of us began a louder and sharper howling, that of wolves, which affected both the horses and myself in the same way, for I was minded to jump from the Kaleshi and run. Whilst, whilst they reared again and plunged madly, so that the driver had to use all his great strength to keep them from bolting. In a few minutes, however, my own ears got accustomed to the sound, and the horses so far became quiet that the driver was able to descend and to stand before them. He petted and soothed them and whispered something in their ears, as I have heard of horse tamers doing, and with extraordinary effect, for under his caresses they became quite manageable again. Though they still trembled, the driver again took his seat, and shaking his reins, started off at a great pace. This time, after going to the far side of the pass, he suddenly turned down a narrow roadway, which ran sharply to the right. Soon we were hemmed in with trees, which in places arched right over the roadway till we passed as though a tunnel, and again... Great frowning rocks guarded us boldly on either side. Though we were in shelter, we could hear the rising wind, for it moaned and whistled through the rocks, and the branches of the trees crashed together as we swept along. It grew colder and colder still, and fine powdery snow began to fall, so that soon we and all around us were covered with a white blanket. The keen wind still carried the howling of the dogs, though this grew fainter as we went on our way. 
The baying of the wolves sounded nearer and nearer, as though they were closing round us from every side. I grew dreadfully afraid, and the horses shared my fear. The driver, however, was not in the least stirred. He kept turning his head to left and right, but I could not see anything through the darkness. Suddenly, away on our left, I saw a faint flickering blue flame. The driver saw it at the same moment. He at once checked the horses, and jumping to the ground, disappeared into the darkness. I did not know what to do. The less as the howling, the less as the howling of the wolves grew closer. But while I wandered, the driver suddenly appeared again, and without a word took his seat, and we resumed our journey. I think I must have fallen asleep and kept dreaming of the incident, for it seemed to be repeated endlessly. And now, looking back, it is like a sort of awful nightmare. Once the flame appeared so near the road that even in the darkness around us, I could watch the driver's motions. He went rapidly to where the blue flame arose. It must have been very faint, for it did not seem to illumine the place around it at all, and gathering a few stones formed them into some device. Once there appeared a strange optical effect. When he stood between me and the flame, he did not obstruct it, for I could see its ghostly flicker. All the same, this startled me. But as the effect was only momentary, I took it that my eyes deceived me, straining through the darkness. Then for a time there were no blue flames, and we sped onwards through the gloom with the howling of the wolves around us, as though they were following any moving circle. At last there came a time when the driver went further afield than he had yet gone, and during his absence the horses began to tremble worse than ever and to snort and scream with fright. I could not see any cause for it, for the howling of the wolves had ceased altogether. But just then, the moon, sailing through the black clouds, appeared behind the jagged crest of a beetling, pine-clad rock, and by its light I saw around us a ring of wolves with white teeth and lolling red tongues. Now that's kind of frightening. With long, sinewy limbs and sherry, with lolling red tongues, with long, sinewy limbs and shaggy hair. They were a hundred times more terrible in the grim silence which held them then. Even when they howled, for myself, I felt a sort of paralysis of fear. It is only when a man feels himself face to face with such horrors that he can understand their true import. All at once, the wolves began to howl at the, as though the moonlight had had some peculiar effect on them. The horses jumped about and reared and looked helplessly around, helplessly round with eyes that rolled in a way painful to see. But the living ring of terror encompassed them on every side, and they had perforce to remain with it, within it. I called to the coachman to come, for it seemed to me that our only chance was to try to break out through the ring and to aid his approach. I shouted and beat the side of the Kaleshi, Kalesh, hoping by the noise to scare the wolves from that side, so as to give him a chance of reaching the trap. How he came there, I know not, but I heard his voice raised in a tone of imperious command, and looking towards the sound, saw him stand in the doorway, in the roadway, as he swept his long arms as though brushing aside some impalpable obstacle. The wolves fell back and back further still. Just then, a heavy cloud across the face of the moon, so that we were again in darkness. When I could see again, the driver was climbing into the Kalesh, and the wolves had disappeared. This was all so strange and uncanny that a dreadful fear came upon me, 
and I was afraid to speak or move. The time seemed interminable. As we swept on our way, now in almost complete darkness, for the rolling clouds obscured the moon, we kept on ascending with occasional periods of quick descent, but in the main, all, in the main always ascending. Suddenly, I became conscious of the fact that the driver was in the act of pulling up the horses in the courtyard of a vast ruined castle, from whose tall black windows came no ray of light, and whose broken battlements showed a jagged line against the moonlit sky. That is the end of chapter one. Should we begin with chapter two, everybody? All right. We should just keep reading chapter two for as long as we can. And then we'll pause, okay? All right. So chapter two, Jonathan Harker's journal continued. So the person who I'm reading from the perspective of is Jonathan Harker's journal. And I believe he just gone to Castle Dracula. Let's see what happens next. Five, May. May 5th. I must have been asleep, for certainly if I had been fully awake, I must have noticed the approach of such a remarkable place. In the gloom, the courtyard looked of considerable size, and as several dark ways led from it under great round arches. It perhaps seemed bigger than it really is. I have not yet been able to see it by daylight. When the caleche stopped, the driver jumped down and held out his hand to assist me to alight. Again, I could not but notice his prodigious strength. His hand actually seemed like a steel vice that could have crushed mine if he had chosen. Then he took out my traps and placed them on the ground. Beside me, as I stood close to a great door, old and studded with large iron nails and set in a projecting doorway of massive stone, I could see, even in the dim light, that the stone was massively carved, but that the carving had been much worn by time and weather. As I stood, the driver jumped again into his seat and shook the reins. The horses started forward and trap and all disappeared down one of the dark openings. I stood in silence where I was, for I did not know what to do. Of bell or knocker there was no sign. Through these frowning walls and dark window openings, it was not likely that my voice could penetrate. The time I waited seemed endless and I felt doubts and fears crowding upon me. What sort of place had I come to, and among what kind of people? What sort of grim adventures was it on which I had embarked? Was this a customary incident in the life of a solicitor's clerk sent out to explain the purchase of a London estate to a foreigner? Solicitor's clerk. Mina would not like that. Solicitor. For just before leaving London, I got word that my examination was successful and I am now a full-blown solicitor. I began to rub my eyes and pitch myself to see if I were awake. It all seemed like a horrible nightmare to me, and I expected that I should suddenly awake and find myself at home with the dawn struggling in through the windows. As I had now again felt in the morning after a day of overwork, but my flesh answered the pitching test, and my eyes were not to be deceived. I was indeed awake and among the Carpathians. All I could do now was to be patient and to wait the coming of the morning. Just as I had come to this conclusion, I heard a heavy step approaching behind the great door and saw through the chinks the gleam of a coming light. Then there was a sound of rattling chains and the clanking of massive bolts drawn back. A key was turned with a loud grating noise of long disuse and the great door swung back. 
Within stood a tall old man, clean-shaven, save for a long white mustache, and clad in black from head to foot, with a single speck of color about him anywhere. He held in his hand an antique silver lamp in which the flame burned without chimney or globe of any kind, throwing long quivering shadows as it flickered in the draught of the open door. Drought of the open door. The old man motioned me in with his right hand with a curtly gesture, saying in excellent English, but with a strange intonation, Welcome to my house. Enter freely and of your own will. He made no motion of stepping to meet me, but stood like a statue as though his gesture of welcome had fixed him into stone. The instant, however, that I have stepped over the threshold, he moved impulsively forward and holding out his hand, grasped mine with a strength which made me wince, an effect which was not lessened by the fact that it seemed as cold as ice, more like the hand of a dead than a living man. Again, he said, welcome to my house. Come freely. Go safely, and leave something of the happiness you bring. The strength of the handshake was so much akin to that which I had noticed in the driver, whose face I had not seen, that for a moment I doubted if it were not the same person to whom I was speaking. So to make sure, I said interrogat interrogatively, Count Dracula? He bowed in a courtly way as he replied, I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome, Mr. Hawker, to my house. Come in. The night air is chill, and you must need to eat and rest. As he was speaking, he put the lamp on a bracket on the wall, and stepping out, took my luggage. He had carried it in before I could forestall him. I protested, but he insisted. Nay, sir, you are my guest. It is late, and my people are not available. Let me see to your comfort myself. He insisted on carrying my traps along the passage, and then up a great winding stair and along another great passage, on whose stone floor our steps rang heavily. At the end of this he threw open a heavy door, and I rejoiced to see within a well-lit room in which a table was spread for supper, and on whose mighty hearth a great fire of logs freshly replenished flamed and flared. Oh, God, that sounds so beautiful right now. I love fire. The Count halted. Putting down my bags, closed the door and crossing the room, opened another door which led into a small octagonal room lit by a single lamp and seemingly without a window of any sort. Passing through this, he opened another door and motioned me to enter. It was a welcome sight, for here was a great bedroom, well lighted and warmed with another log fire, also added to, but lately, for the top logs were fresh, which set a hollow roar up the wide chimney. The Count himself left my luggage inside and withdrew saying before he closed the door, You will need, after your journey, to refresh yourself by making your toilet. I trust you will find all you wish. When you are ready, come into the other room, where you will find your supper prepared. The light and warmth and the Count's courteous welcome seemed to have dissipated all my doubts and fears. Having then reached my normal state, I discovered that I was half famished with hunger. So making a hasty toilet, I went into the other room. I found supper already laid out, my host, who stood on one side of the great fireplace, leaning against the stonework, made a graceful wave of his hand to the table and said, I pray you, be seated and sup how you please. You will, I trust. Excuse me that I do not join you, but I have dined already, and I do not sup. I handed to him the sealed letter which Mr. Hawkins had entrusted to me. He opened it and read it gravely. 
Then, with a charming smile, he handed it to me to read. One passage of it, at least, gave me a thrill of pleasure. I must regret that an attack of gout from which milady I am a constant sufferer forbids absolutely any travelling on my part for some time to come, but I am happy to say I can send a sufficient substitute, one in whom I have very every possible confidence. He is a young man, full of energy and talent in his own way, and of a very faithful disposition. He is discreet and silent, and has grown into manhood in my service. He shall be ready to attend you when you will during his day, and shall take your instructions in all matters. The Count himself came forward and took off the cover of a dish, and I fell to at once an excellent roast chicken. This, oh my god, chicken. Everybody loves chicken, I swear to God. This, with some cheese and a salad and a bottle of old toquet, of which I had two glasses, was my supper. During the time I was eating it, the Count asked me many questions as to my journey, and I told him about degree by, the, by degrees all I had experienced. By this time, I had finished my supper, and by my host's desire, had drawn up a chair by the fire and began to smoke a cigar, which he offered me, at the same time excusing himself that he did not smoke. I had now an opportunity of observing him, and found him of a very marked... Psyonomy? Physiognomy. I don't know what the hell that word is. Let me just highlight that real quick. What the hell does that say? It, a person's facial features expression, especially when regarded as indica indicative of a character or ethnic origin. Okay. His face was a strong, a very strong aquiline, with high bridge of the thin nose and peculiarly arched nostrils, with lofty domed forehead and hair growing scantily round the temples, but profusely elsewhere. His eyebrows were very massive, almost meeting over the nose, and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion. The mouth, so far as I could see it under the heavy moustache, was fixed and rather cool-looking, with peculiarly sharp white teeth. These protruded over the lips, whose remarkable ruddiness, ruddiness showed astonishing vitality in a man of his years. For the rest, his ears were pale, and at the tops extremely pointed. The chin was broad and strong, and the cheeks from though thin, the general effect was one of extraordinary pallor. Hitherto I had noticed the backs of his hands as they lay on his knees in the firelight, and they had seemed rather white and fine, but seeing them now close to me I could not but notice that they were rather coarse, broad with squat fingers, strange to say, there were hairs in the censer of the palm. <laughs> the nails were long and fine and cut to a sharp point as the count leaned over me and his hands touched me i could not repress a shudder it may have been that his breath was rank but a horrible feeling of nausea came over me which do what i would i could not conceal the count evidently noticing it drew back and with a grim sort of smile which showed more than he had yet done his protuberant teeth sat himself down again on his own side of the fireplace. We were both silent for a while, and as I looked towards the window, I saw the first dim streak of the coming dawn. There seemed a strange stillness over everything, but as I listened, I heard, as if from down below in the valley, the howling of many woes. The Count's eyes gleamed, and he said, Listen to them, the children of the night. What music they make! Seeing, I suppose, some expression in my face strange to him, he added, 
Ah, sir, you dwellers in the city cannot enter into the feelings of the hunter. Then he rose and said, But you must be tired. Your bedroom is already in tomorrow. You shall sleep as late as you will. I have to be away till the afternoon, so sleep well and dream well. With a courteous bow, he opened for me himself the door to the octagonal room, and I entered my bedroom. I am all in a sea of wonders. I doubt, I fear, I think strange things, but I dare not confess to my own soul. God keep me, if only for the sake of those dear to me. Alright, and this is where we're going to stop for today. Count Dracula is pretty cool. Too bad he has like stinky-ass breath and obviously masturbates too much because he has hairy palms. <laughs> I wonder if that's where um, that stupid shit began. But anyway, thank you for joining me. A few more days and it's Halloween, my favorite holiday. I hope you're excited. And I hope we get cooler, cooler months. The leaves are starting to change. The air is starting to get cooler. Except, unfortunately, tomorrow for some reason we have a heat wave. But, ah, uh, it just feels good to be cozy once again. Thank you once more for joining me. And reading along with me. And most of all, thank you for taking a bit of your time to stay a while and listen. I have been your I have been your reader L. Till next time.